The other day, I was in the checkout line where I was apparently about to pay applause-worthy prices at Target. And as I was in this checkout line, bustling as it was, and, and feeling slowly sort of crowded in, like I was at a rock concert of people with overstuffed buggies, all the den of noise was overcome by one miniature human probably three to six years old. I didn't even get lay good eyes on him because I knew better than to look, but he made his appearance known vividly like this. Seven hundred times he said, I want a, and he either said he wanted a toy or a dog or some monosyllabic thing. What it was he wanted was obscured to my vision. I couldn't make it out. I was trying because I imagined that his mother was dying a thousand slow deaths of humiliation because she had no muzzle, she had no power. This kid was controlling the entire store. And I think she was probably just sitting there saying, Dear Lord, please zap us out of here. Come return now. Rapture us something. Get us out of here. I was trying not to look because I thought this woman's dying. This kid is inconsolable. Maybe he needs a nap. I don't know what happened. But it was fortuitous that we were not able to discern what it was he wanted. He knew what he wanted. And I could have imagined if I were able to talk to him, you know, I, I might say, fella, I don't, I don't know what it is that's being denied you, but, you know, it's not going to do the trick. And then he would have looked at me and rolled his eyes and said, please don't bother me. But I thought, you know, it's interesting that here he is wailing in a store, crying out, I want a, and I don't know what the muffled want was, but I thought, you know, I, I bet 82% of the people standing in line right now could easily start wailing and moaning and entering into some kind of mourning for just for being here in Target in this line. But I've learned that if I start crying out loud and, and, and shouting my disaffectation in places like Walmart, where sometimes the Lord punishes us, that I would probably be institutionalized or, or, or lose my job, and I don't want to do that. A little boy didn't know how impolite he was being, and he, he'll learn. But we all kind of have deep wants like that, and he just was impolitely making his known in a boisterous fashion. The scriptures say, what a man desires, or as Matt would want us to remind you, and I'm happy to do it, what a woman desires, what a child desires is unfailing love. That's a craving that you might as well stand in the middle of a store and wail out because underneath all the kinds of wants that you have is this want for somebody eyes to light up when you walk in the room, for somebody to take you so deeply into account, for somebody to know you so remarkably well and still like you anyway. I want unfailing love. And it's interesting to note that John, as we're making our way through Advent, is preoccupied with this notion of love, this craving, this muffled want that's underneath so many of our other wants. When our 
we outbreak in anger. C.S. Lewis said that anger is the juice that love bleeds when you cut it. When you get angry, it's your self-love. It's being cut. It's not, you're not getting something that you crave. You want to be loved. And John says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He's saying over and over again, here's how love can be made complete. Show his love. This love will drive out your fear of judgment, your fear of rejection, your fear of death. It's a love that really is pretty comprehensive, and it's, it's big enough to revolve around, a life around. Henry James said this in one of his novels, if I can find it. Upon my word, I'm not happy. I'm clever enough to want more than I've got. Like that little boy in the checkout line, but not only him. I'm clever enough to want more than I've got. I'm tired of myself, my own thoughts, my own affairs, my own eternal company. True happiness, and you've been told this, right? True happiness consists in getting outside of oneself. Someone's told you that somewhere along the line, right? True happiness consists in getting out of oneself. But the point is not only to get out, you must stay out. And to stay out, you must have some absorbing errand. That is a profound realization. I'm sick of myself. I can't stand being with myself sometimes. I have learned and been told many times that happiness consists in getting outside of myself. I even have some evidence probably of times when I was doing something and I wasn't thinking about myself until I thought about whether I was enjoying it or not. And I was enjoying something. I was outside myself. The problem is I always keep coming back to me. So I've got to figure out what could be the absorbing errand of my life that would capture my attention enough so that I'm not stuck inside what Malcolm Muggeridge called the gloomy little dungeon of myself. And John would tell us, here is for you an absorbing endeavor to keep you out of yourself, to catapult you out and to lock the, bar, lock the doors shut. Or at least an aspiration for when you get stuck inside to keep coming back out. And the aspiration is this. If you want to know it, it's Christmas, so this has got to rhyme. If you want to know it, you must seek to show it. What's up, Dr. Seuss? If you want to know it, you must seek to show it. See, John would say this. Here's an absorbing endeavor of your life. And it might seem too simple. It might not seem big enough, but that's just because you haven't thought about it enough. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. You crave unfailing love. You want it badly. The problem is that nearly all of us here spend our time thinking about how we can get unfailing love. And John says, you've got it. You've got it because Christmas. You've got it because Easter. You've got it because God was acting before you were even alive to mess it up. God was already taking care to come in your flesh to taste death for everyone so that by the grace of God, you won't taste it. 
He came in our skin so that he could sympathize with your weakness. He came in restriction so that you could be free. He came to be humiliated. One long cold shower of a life so that you would never be humiliated before God. And he says, that's love. And now, here's an absorbing errand for your life. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. In fact, you can tell that you belong to God when your nature has changed in such a way that you start to be more preoccupied with the good of others than you are with the good of yourself. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. A test of your salvation, a test of whether you've been acted on by God or not, is has your nature begun to be altered in some substantial way? Has it? A man in our congregation the other day told me that he just got a beagle. So I've added him to my prayer list. Because a beagle's a fine-looking dog, and that's all that could be said about them. A beagle is forever following his own nose. His nose guides him. These olfactory senses that can smell stuff in South Dakota means... He doesn't care about you when he can smell something that is more interesting than you, which is everything to him. So in my experience, I had a good friend who had a beagle dog. He'd let the dog outside, and boom, he would take off. You might see him next Thursday. He was constantly frustrated, constantly angry at this little dog. And so, well, what are you going to do? Until the dog gets converted, he's not going to stay. He's got to get Holy Ghost until it, so he'll be loyal to you and not just to his own sniffer. Reminds me of Funny Farm, that Chevy Chase movie I'm sure everybody saw in the 80s, where he moves to the country from the fast-paced, highest-city life, and he wants to live a Norman Rockwell existence, so of course he needs, as he moves to this farm, to go out and buy him a dog. The first day he goes and buys himself an Irish setter. He's so excited, drives home, he opens up his door of his car, and the Irish setter jumps out and takes off sprinting and never returns. And one of the fun themes in the movie, after he spends a whole day looking for him unsuccessfully, is that periodically, days and days and weeks later, you'll just see the dog running through a scene. Just running somewhere else. So he goes out and gets another dog. Yellow dog, he calls it. Yellow dog has no ambition. Yellow dog will just lay there by the fire, maybe even in the fire, tail there, and when it starts to singe... Chevy Chase has to move his tail because he doesn't even know. Dogs act according to their nature. You've been around retrievers. They just want to retrieve and retrieve, and they will send you to the asylum because they will never tire of it, even though you tire of it after five minutes. They need hours and hours and hours. John says you have this natural nature. He calls it being in death. Everybody has it, everybody excels at it, where you're naturally self-absorbed. Congratulations. You're naturally adept and astute at being a serious scholar of yourself. So you know very well 
when someone gives you the stink eye or the crook eye, to quote Kramer, you know very well if someone is snubbing you, if they're not thinking about you, if they said something hurtful to you. If you want a test of this, if you want to test to see how astute you are, just remember and think about how you feel when you're in a hurry, on the way to school, on the way to work, on the way to a meeting, and you go down the mountain, and in front of you is some delightful chap from Kentucky or Arkansas. Nothing against those fine southern states. They just don't live on the mountain. So they have the audacity to enjoy the scenery and to conspire with all the other cars on the road to be against you. They don't understand that you have places to be. And it's a silly example, but it affects really about everything you do. And John says, if you've been born of God, if the, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, that the idea of the incarnation is God became what we are so we can become what he is. God took a human nature to himself, and now we are in Godded. We who believe in Christ, we get a divine nature in ourselves so that we are human and divine. We have this new impulse. Peter says we participate in the divine nature. And that nature, like God, is a nature that wants to be generous. It's a nature, a nature that wants to look outward. It's a nature that doesn't only consider oneself. It says, how may I help you? How may I sacrifice for your benefit? And it's not just a sort of CrossFit ethic, like lots of sweating and heavy lifting and putting refrigerators over your head. It can be pleasurable. In another place, John says, this is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. That's when you know. It's part of how you come to assurance that you belong to God as you actually start to care about the well-being of other people more than your own. And it's not just onerous. It's not just awful because you've had a, you've had a heart transplant. You've had a new nature implanted in you. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And all of a sudden, even though you crave to be unfailingly loved, you will seek to show it in order to know it. Your life won't revolve anymore about how do I get loved. Your life will start to revolve around how do I show this love. That's the absorbing endeavor you need and you want. Listen to John as he goes on. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Most of you, you're, on, you're at church on Christmas. I mean, you're the serious ones here, right? Or the guiltiest ones, whatever. Or you're married to the pastor and you have no clue. What was I saying? I don't know. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
One of the problems is we think, I think, that what should happen is that we should be able somehow to, like a, like a siphon from a divine gas tank in the sky, be able to siphon off love from God so that we're kind of filled up, so that love is oozing out of our pores, and then we'll go out into the world and show it to people. But John seems to make it as if there's an incompletion until love is shown. He says, you've got God's love. It's demonstrated in his sacrifice for you. He sacrificed that you might be his son, that you might be reborn. You want him because he wanted you. Now we know and rely on the love that God has for us. And so what happens is we actually have an impetus to say, if I want to know God's love, I don't just sit around and just hope that it's going to fill me like the ether. I say, how may I demonstrate that love in practical ways, with my words, with my actions, with my ears? Because when we love, his love is made complete in us. I heard a story the other day. A guy said, my four-year-old is screaming and screaming and screaming. First four-year-old to ever do that. And I said, please write down on a piece of paper what is bothering you, son. And so this boy scribbled inarticulately, as boys are wont to scribble. And he said, translation, the problem is not me. This is what the four-year-old was saying. What is wrong with you? Why are you so mad? Why are you so sad? The problem is not me, the boy surmised. Most of us, if we're not feeling loved, if we're not feeling taken into account, if we're not feeling rightly valued, maybe they don't pay you enough at work, maybe not enough people encourage you, maybe not enough people pick up after themselves in your house, maybe your children don't respond to you, maybe maybe your kids are grown and they don't call you enough. The most natural thing in the world is for you to be preoccupied with the sense that the problem is not me. The problem is all the bonehead love idiots in the world who do not know how to love me right. Am I loved? Am I thought of? Am I mattering to someone? Let me assure you that John would say, there is somebody who's supposed to be worrying about that. It's just not you. There's somebody who's supposed to be worrying about whether or not you're loved. It's just not you. It's probably the person sitting next to you or the person behind you. We are all sent on this absorbing errand to show the love of God to each other. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We ought to be willing to, like God, who shows us what love is, to give of ourselves in order to bring benefit to others. Or as Bruce Walkie says, righteousness is is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another. Everybody in here has people that they could be asking the question. Whenever you start to say, hey, they never call me, maybe you should say, hey, I never call them. Do judo on yourself. Well, well, nobody gave me a gift. Maybe that means, maybe I should give somebody a gift. I wish somebody would say something kind to me. Boom, judo. I should say something kind to someone. John says, 
No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, his love lives in us and is made complete in us. The consummation, the the fulfillment, the enrichment of God's love always comes communally. It always comes as you're loving other people. I hope you've experienced that today. The problem is often us, but it's often something we can do judo on ourselves about and say, if I want to know God's love, I've got to know and seek to show God's love. His love is made complete in us as we love one another. That is the absorbing end. So a challenge here, as you think about this, Bob Goff has said, no one is ever remembered for what they planned to do. Thank you, Corby. I know y'all didn't sleep much last night. I didn't either. That's why the sermon's so bad. No one is ever remembered for what they planned to do. It's interesting that John doesn't say, you got to try really hard to love people. Take your love vitamins. Drink tang with lots of love in it. He says, here's how you'll love. The God who is love takes up residence in you. His intent was that now we would live through him. Your life is now lived by, with another living through you. With another life coming out of you. And so the Apostle Paul can say in Thessalonians, which we use as a benediction sometimes, I pray that he may make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else so that you may be strengthened and holy and blameless before our Father when he comes with all his holy ones. It's worth asking as you go out into the world, as you go home today, Lord Jesus, increase my love and let me be on the lookout for where I can show your love in order that eventually I'll know your love. The promise is that we know and rely on the love God has for us and that when we show it, it will be made complete in us and we will know it. There's a great novel, a little story, it's not a novel, nonfiction called Season of Life, and it's a reporter who's followed this football team, and this is not a football analogy, so do not glaze over. You can appreciate it even if you despise the violent and wonderful game of football. But these coaches who had this powerhouse program in Maryland had this very unique style and way with their kids. They would, you know, in those breakdown situations, you get people in a in a group, and you do a lot of rah-rah stuff and bang on each other's heads and things. Put your hands in the middle and defense and things like that. Except in this case, the coaches would say to the boys, what is our job? That's weird. What is our job? As coaches, what is our job? And the players would shout in unison, to love us, as all football players do. Saban has this guy say that. And the players then were asked, and what is your job? And the players would say, to love each other. What is our job? To love us. What is your job? To love each other. These football coaches had realized 
that the command to love has very practical benefit even in a game. There isn't an arena of your life where if you make this the absorbing errand of your life, it won't come into play. There's nowhere you go where you can't say, how may I help you? How may I benefit you? God, how may you broker your life through me for the benefit of others in listening and giving and serving and doing my work well? There's no job that you have where love won't play a factor in it. The craftsmanship that you do, the salesmanship that you employ, the effort that you generate. If you start out saying, what is my job? My absorbing errand to keep me out of myself is to love my customer, my spouse, my kids, my neighbor, the poor. I have a powerhouse of love pushing love out of me and made complete as we do it. Just this morning, a guy told me, I thought, what a great way to start a day. And I know not all businesses can do this. A guy who works at a hospital, respiratory therapist, I think. He says, most days we start our day in a prayer circle. That happens everywhere, I'm sure. Asking God to benefit others through us and to keep us humble so that we realize healing comes from him. We are just instruments. John would say, you who crave unfailing love, you with muffled wants under everything you do, who want love, if you want it, seek to show it where it will be made complete in you and in others. There'll be a circulatory system of multiplying love that makes the world glad and keeps you from screaming in Target. Amen.